Hello, and welcome to the Seek Learning Podcast. I'm Professor Casey Griffiths, a professor of church history and doctrine at Brigham Young University, and also president of the BYU Latter-day Saint Educator Society. Seek Learning is designed to bring you the best in educational research to assist teachers in professional home and church settings. And if you like what you hear in this episode, please subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends, or leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. For today's topic, let me introduce a little story. When I was 19, I received a mission call to serve in Fort Lauderdale in Florida. I grew up in a little town in central Utah where I knew practically everybody, and everyone was a lot like me. We spoke the same language, went to the same church, celebrated the same holidays, and our cultural background was pretty similar. When I arrived in Florida, one of the first areas I was assigned to was Miami, and that was a very, very different place than the kind of environment I grew up in. Miami is a vibrant city with dozens of different cultures filtering in from the Caribbean and other countries. Where I lived, most of the street signs were in Spanish. I interacted with people from Puerto Rico, Haiti, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Cuba, and I loved it. I learned about new cultures, expanded my mind, and best of all, tried new foods. I mean, where had Cuban food been all my life? Even though I was assigned as an English missionary, I learned enough Spanish to make it through a first discussion, though most of the time the Spanish-speaking elders would just point at me at a key moment, and I would say, Dios es mi padre. My experiences as a missionary taught the importance of learning language and really getting to know other cultures. Our guest on the podcast today, Juan Freer, has a multinational background and is a specialist in duolingual education. Juan raises a few great questions about the way we do education and how we can help students who might speak one language in the classroom and another at home. If one of the roles of educators is to bring us all together, how can we help everyone and how is language a great tool in our arsenal to create unity? Welcome to Seek Learning. In the lives of Latter-day Saints, education is central to their religion and its practice. For members of the church, education is not merely a good idea. It's a commandment. At the David O. McKay School of Education at Brigham Young University, scholars carry out different studies every year in the field of education. In this podcast, we speak with these scholars to find out what they discovered about education and what does it mean for Latter-day Saints. How can these findings be applied in home and gospel settings? Finally, what inspired them to become an educator, and how has it affected their lives? Education is the difference between wishing you could help other people and being able to help them. This is the Seek Learning Podcast, presented by the BYU Latter-day Saint Educator Society. Dr. Juan Freer has worked as an assistant professor at Brigham Young University since fall 2016. Previously, he worked as an assistant professor at New Mexico State University for two years. He's also worked as an elementary school teacher for four years in Spain and for three years in a Spanish-English dual-language bilingual education program at an urban school in Utah. In 2014, Dr. Freer completed his Ph.D. at the University of Utah with a dissertation focusing on the beliefs and practices of Spanish-English dual-language bilingual education teachers learning how to enact culturally relevant pedagogy. His research interests concentrate on equity and dual language education with a line of research looking at multicultural teaching practices and a second line looking at language and education policies in dual language bilingual education. 
Dr. Freer recently sat down with Betsy Ecton from our team to talk about bilingual education and how we can help students integrate into it. Let's join their conversation. Well, Dr. Freer, we're so happy to have you here today. In this article, um, you and the other authors describe yourselves as committed to promoting language education for all students with a specific interest in equitable access to education and the form of capital it distributes. Can you help us understand more about language education and its relationship to equitable educational access and the capital it distributes? Yes, thank you. So when we look at language education, we look at different programs, including bilingual education. And specifically, we look at these dual language um, immersion programs, but we do it from a perspective in which we look at the intersectionality of language with race and class or, or socioeconomic status. Uh, so when we talk about the different types of capital, and we understand that everybody has capital. Uh, capital, however, can be perceived and, and is, is utilized and is um, considered differently um, for, for individuals. One of the capitals that we discuss in our work is racial capital or racial privilege. Uh, based on your uh, race, um, and, in the and depending on the context, your uh, racial capital will be higher or be lower. Uh, wealth or socioeconomic status is another form of capital. Uh, when you have money, when you have wealth, you have more capital than if you do not have wealth. And same thing with uh, English. Uh, when we look at English, um, that's a form of capital. Uh, that language capital will open doors, will have you navigate uh, the systems better than if you do not have English capital in the United States. So that's how we look at these uh, different forms of capital, how language and how language education, in this case, dual language education programs distribute and help students uh, gain more or less, um, in this case, uh, language capital. And we look at these unequal distributions of economic, cultural, social capital in society, where some students um, remain privileged and others are more marginalized. Fascinating. In your study, you pose two main research questions. Can you briefly tell us about each question and your overall findings? Yes. Yeah, so the first question look at, looks at policy. We wanted to, to see what the policy says, how the policy uh, supports uh, language minority students or how it does not. And we found that students were, were mainly benefited were those who had more capital uh, when it comes to race, class, and language. The other question looks at um, the demographics, the demographic distributions, and how these programs um, were uh, implemented uh, in what schools they were implemented based on race, class, and language. So we looked at three stages. The first stage is the what we call the pre-state model. Uh, we found that in this pre-state model, um, the programs were implemented from grassroots efforts, mainly um, towards helping English learners um, learn the language, learn English, maintain the language, and be more academic successful. Then, uh, so this, mainly these programs were placed in these schools where there's high numbers of these um, minority students. 
we look at the transition period from 2006 to 2008, which is when when the state started um, piloting the programs, the, the model, and when they started passing these bills uh, to fund these programs. And we found that that the programs were flipping from programs that I mentioned earlier that were towards um, English learners, uh, mainly to programs with no English learners. And then we look at the, the state model period, which uh, runs from 2009 uh, to 2014. And we found that schools where these uh, programs were implemented had low numbers of English learners, low number of minority students, low number of um, low-income students. And that's how, that's what we call this, um, use this metaphor of the gentrification because uh, it moved from, from an equity heritage uh, perspective, more to a neoliberal, what we call global human capital perspective, mainly for economic purposes and to privilege those students who are already privileged based on race, class, and language. I found it interesting in the article when you addressed this that the way in which students acquire their multilingualism often results in the way society differs that in the value they place upon that multilingualism. Mm -hmm. Why do you think that is? Yes, and we see that a lot across the country. Uh, there's an important number of studies that show this. And for example, we, we, when we see a student, um, an English learner, um, and they, he knows the colors, he knows he can start communicating. Sometimes teachers, even in dual language programs, they're had this attitude of, well, it was about time. I mean, you're going to lag behind. I mean, welcome to this country, learn the language. However, when we see that white English speaking students start learning the colors in Spanish and they start communicating, it is much more celebrated. But that doesn't happen when English learners, and it's the same cognitive effort, it's the same work. Uh, however, when a white English-speaking student starts learning Spanish, it's amazing. And it's an, it's an amazing dual language program, but it's not the focus, the celebration that happen when these marginalized communities are learning the language. For example, Spanish from Spain, which is where I'm originally from, is more valued than Spanish from Mexico or Spanish from Bolivia. Uh, so usually white English speaking students, when they learn Spanish, is usually the standard Spanish, the Spanish from Spain. Um, however, so, and that's celebrated and that's valued. However, when Mexican students are speaking Spanish, it's this ghetto dirty Spanish. It's not real Spanish. It's, it's not the Spanish that we value. So we, that's how we look at race, class, and language. The language that they portray, that they bring, is seen as, is perceived as lower economically uh, because it's from, this, um, from these countries that do not have, uh, are not uh, considered as high as other countries. And this is Spanish, but it could be same with French, French Guyana versus French from Europe, or, and it could be same as we, uh, with other languages. So that's how we see this hierarchy of varieties of languages. Uh, if a student says, I learned Spanish in study abroad, my gosh, that's great. If I say, 
if someone says I learned Spanish with my grandparents, it's probably uh, valued less than than the other student. Dr. Freer has given us a good feel for the importance of these programs. And in the next part of our conversation with Juan, he explains a few of the really practical reasons why learning languages is vital to our society and vital to the work of the church around the globe. As members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, um, we traditionally value multilingualism, education, and loving and serving all of our brothers and sisters across the globe. So given this, what actions do you see members of the church can take in relation to DLI programs, dual language immersion programs, and language learning in general? Thank you for asking that. So um, it, it is true that in the church, we do value multilingualism. Uh, it is very important. Uh, the church encourages us to learn languages, which is very useful when we go on missions, right? So um, one, of the, one of the takeaways of this study um, is that we, yes, we value multilingualism, but we need to place the same emphasis for um, for language minority communities. We want everybody to learn to be multilingual, but we don't want the multilingualism to be removed from multilingual communities and be somehow stolen, if you will, to language majority communities, uh, because. It is important, it is part of who we are. Um, for example, if there's a, a brand student called, I'm gonna just use the name Jose Garcia, right? He's assumed to speak Spanish. People think that he speaks Spanish. And when he says, no, I don't speak Spanish, why didn't did they teach you Spanish? Your parents are from this country. But that doesn't happen to second generation or third generation uh, white European immigrants in this country. Uh, nobody says, what? Your, per your grandparents are from Sweden and you don't speak Swedish? That's, am I'm amazed. Or I'm amazed you don't speak German. But people of color like me, and whether we are Latinos, whether we are Asians, we're expected to speak our heritage language. So for, we need to language programs for minority communities of color because People are expecting it because otherwise they make us feel bad because we don't speak the language. Uh, we feel we are, as parents, we feel bad because we're not teaching the language, but we have zero support from the educational system. Because then when our kids go to secondary, they learn Spanish as a foreign language, not usually not Spanish for native speakers. And something that people need to understand is that language loss is real. Uh, there's a huge number of students across the country who go to enter the educational system speaking a minority language and they end up being English monolingual, which is very sad and very unfortunate. And we see that all the time with language minority communities. They end up being English monolingual so they can feel more Americanized, so they can feel more integrated, so they're not questioned whether they are true U.S. citizens. And while we have this English, new English monolingual generation, uh, we have these English-speaking communities becoming bilingual. So it is ironic how the language is moving to majority communities. And, and that's something that we need to understand as members of the church, because when you go to non-English-speaking units throughout the, across the country, we see children in primary, children and young men and young women who do not speak good 
Spanish, with French, or whatever their language is. They do not want to speak the language unless they're newcomers, right? But we see this phenomenon in the church, and we're sending them on missions, and they struggle on their missions. They don't know the language very well. They don't feel comfortable. Many of them feel that they speak a seven-year-old Spanish uh, level because that's when they started losing the language. Uh, so we want it because it's going to be good for our members of the church. It's going to be good for regardless of their religion. They're going to be better missionaries if they choose to go on a mission. They're going to be better leaders. They're going to be better community members. It is needed because we have family uh, miscommunication. A lot of these kids uh, do not understand their parents. Their parents do not understand their children. And in the church, we know that family is the most important unit in society. We have the family uh, proclamation to the uh, the proclamation to the family, and we need to understand that dual language education can make a huge difference. Uh, raising adolescents is already hard enough. Uh, Imagine not being able to understand your children or that your children do not understand what, you, what you're saying. Uh, one of the good things of dual language programs is that one of the goals is culture. And they're going to be more proud of the parents' culture, the parents' language. Many kids, many, many language minority kids, they feel ashamed of their parents' accents. They literally tell that do not speak in front of my friends. Because their English is broken, they have a heavy accent. That doesn't happen with dual language programs. And a, a story that I have is that I remember when my first, when my child, when she was a first grade, uh, a first grader, she was invited to a birthday party. And when I went there with my child, her friend looked at her with big eyes and told her dad, oh, "Dad, Erica is coming. Erica is so smart." She speaks Spanish. And the dad and I look at each other, smile, right? And um, of course, my child speaks Spanish. We speak Spanish all the time in society, in church, all over the place. And my child was perceived as smart. Even if she was an English language learner at that time, her English was not good, but she was not perceived as a second-class student. In English-only schools, language minority students are perceived as you're not smart. You're pulled out to ESL classes. You need help. I don't understand. But in dual language program, it's a totally different game. Our research shows that it's the best educational program for English learners. And we want that. We, we want that. That's why we are right. Why we wrote this paper. And I, that's why you wrote multiple papers on this topic. That's great. What should each of us know and understand about DLI programs and our children's participation in those programs. Sometimes we take for granted that, or we think that um, education is neutral, education is perfect, it worked for me, so it must work for everyone. But that's not true. Uh, we need to understand that um, maybe it worked for us and it worked for our people, but it doesn't mean that it works for minority communities. Uh, the dual language uh, case is a testament that there's inequities, not only in who has access to the programs, but also how it is promoted by the state. And we also want 
to raise awareness that this is important for academic purposes. Because for those who are in the field of education, it's not a secret that minority communities perform in state standardized tests lower than the majority communities. But if we're not aware of these inequities, institutional inequities, systemic inequities, then we're going to put the blame on the minority students, their families, and their communities without understanding how policy, curriculum, instruction, school discipline, uh, programs, um, materials, textbooks, media, etc., actually plays a big factor in these inequities, in these uh, in the in students' outcomes. We want majority students, we want white English speaking students in the programs, but not just we just don't want the parents to take the the children, because you were asking about children's participation in these programs. We just don't want uh, these children to participate to learn a language per se for economic purposes. We also want them to become allies, to become friends to include, to stop judging minority students and looking at these minority communities as less. Yes, learn our language, but understand our issues, our inequities, become allies, and and do not judge. That's great. And for those who maybe, we talked about students there, what about those who don't have students? Maybe there are those listening who... um, don't have any students participating in DLI programs or any connection to DLI programs, what would you suggest are some things that we can learn from this study and how we can promote multilingualism and educational equity in general overall, even if we don't have children in those programs? Yes. Well, something that people can do is um, stop the myth that language minority parents need to speak English at home. That is very common. Till, till this day. I know people who have been told, again, with very good intentions, like, hey, if you speak English, speak English so your child can speak English. Your child is going to speak English whether you want it or not, period. If you take your child to a dual language program, that your child is going to learn English better, actually, than if you take him to an English immersion program so, or, or an English-only program, right? So we want multilingualism at home. So let us speak Spanish or whatever language it is at home when we go to grocery shopping, in church, uh, in the community, etc. I think we can promote multilingualism by celebrating that minority par- language minority parents speak to their children in their first language. We need to understand that, um, that we can also encourage schools, if we have friends who are school administrators, say, hey, open a DLI program. Um, do you have English learners? That's the best program for them to learn English because as the children learn more and more Spanish, which is the heritage language, they're going to be learning Spanish literacy and research shows that Spanish literacy will transfer into English literacy and they're going to be better literate in English. So let's, let's support uh, opening DLI programs in schools where there's a high number of English learners and minority kids. Let's encourage minority parents to participate in those programs. And let's, if we know any parents who are language minority, we can tell them about these programs because word of mouth uh, can make a difference. Love that. Can you tell us one, um, perhaps a story related to the publication that would be helpful for readers, listeners, sorry, to understand um, some personal aspects 
of this issue in the study? Thank you. Yes. Um, when I was uh, doing my doctoral program, I had a, I just quit my job as a dual language teacher, but I still had friends who were dual language teachers uh, from, from Spain because I came to this country to work as a dual language teacher. We, we recruit uh, teachers from Spain, from Mexico, from Peru, from China, France. I was one of them. And I had friends and one of the, one of the teachers told me, I cannot believe it. Uh, I'm a Spanish teacher at a school. This was in, in, in Davis County. And he said, and they will not let my child participate in the Spanish program because I'm being told that my child needs to learn English first. And when my child learns English, then my child can be part of the dual language program. I was, I mean, I was shocked because there's no research that uh, supports that decision. Um, that wasn't, that's not the only story. I've heard multiple stories of parents being told your child cannot participate in the Spanish DLI program until your child becomes a fluent English speaker. Well, I mean, that's, that's not the idea. The idea is we want, we want them to learn Spanish simultaneously with English because they transfer both languages. They don't lag behind. One of the problems that we have with English language learners is that they learn the language at the expense of the content. They, some people say, put them in English. What makes sense for people is the more English, the better. Well, they're learning, they're figuring out math, they're figuring out social studies, they're figuring out science. They're learning the language, but they don't perform well because they're lost. Um, whereas in dual language programs, they don't lag behind academically. They learn um, math in Spanish, uh, while they learn social studies in English, next year it flips. So they, they do not lag behind. That's why minority students, language minority students in dual language, they perform better. State, uh, state test results show that they do better than students in English-only programs. For the last part of our conversation with Juan Freer, we always like to hear a personal story. Juan talks to us about how he was immersed in a number of different cultures as a child, how he worked his way through academia, how he came to love dual language education, and how he thinks education and the gospel fit together. Well, tell us a little bit about yourself. We're excited to know a little bit more about your educational background and what led you to seek education in your career in education. Well, I was... Um... I did my undergrad in Spain. I was a, an elementary school teacher and I worked as an elementary school teacher for four years over there. I pursued my, my master's program. Um, then I came to the U.S. I worked as a dual language teacher for three more years and I decided to do a PhD. My mom told me, Juan, you should do a PhD when I was uh, in, in college. I went to the University of Utah and I did my PhD in bilingual and multicultural education. I believe that all, all children of God um, have a divine potential and they all should have access to, to education. And that's why I love so much education because, and I want to make sure that all people have the same access that I had. That's great. And it sounds like you had some different uh, opportunities to study in different places. Why did you choose those specific places to study and pursue your own degrees? 
I went to, um, so for my master's, I went to uh, the Universidad Complutense de Madrid. Um, it's a good university, but mostly the reason why I went there is because I, I really liked the master's program they had. Um, I ended, um, I wanted to be a counselor, a school counselor in the beginning. I switched careers, right? But I switched to a more social focused program, more focused on inequities and marginalized communities that I really, I, I think the Lord drove me there somehow. And I really enjoyed it. I was very open to that because my dad is from Ecuador. He was an immigrant uh, in Spain. So a lot of the things that minority students uh, feel here, I felt the same when I was in Spain, uh, being raised in a bicultural home with a parent who is uh, dark and, uh, and, and, an, and an immigrant. Then the reason why I went to the University of Utah is because I was already living here in, in Utah, in Salt Lake City. And I started taking classes as a non-matriculated student at the program called Education, Culture, and Society. And I fell in love because it, I noticed that it was a continuation of what I had already started in Spain. And I was very, very passionate about uh, inequities, uh, making a difference, uh, giving my two cents. Wow. I love being driven by the Lord. That's a, a perfect way to, to plan your route there, isn't it? Well, tell us why you think education is important and how has education helped you to build your faith? Well, I believe education um, is a commandment. And this is something that the church uh, says. And I think that um, education is, is important because we all have the, the capacity to learn. Uh, I don't believe that there's students who are less um, edu... I don't know how to say in English, but educatable, I guess or more less able to be educated, I realized that that was not true. All children can be educated uh, with love, with, uh, with uh, using different strategies, different uh, pedagogies. And I think education is important because we all have the right to be educated. We all have the right to grow and make a difference in whatever field we want. And, and I... And how education helped build my faith, um, because as I work with minority communities, as I do work to help to make a difference, I feel um, I develop more love to those, to those communities, and I feel that's the same love that the Lord has for all of us. The Lord loves all of his children um, based on their race based on their language, based on their socioeconomic status. That's the race, that's the skin color he's given his children. And no child should be uh, precluded from advancing his education because he does not have the right uh, skin color or he doesn't have the right um, language or he was not born in the right zip code. Such an important message for all of us. Thank you, Dr. Freire, for your time today. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Our thanks to Betsy Acton and Juan Freer for their time today. The Seek Learning Podcast is produced by the BYU Latter-day Saint Educator Society in cooperation with the McKay School of Education. I'm Casey Paul Griffiths, and I serve along with Michael Leonard as the executive producers of this podcast. We also receive assistance from Joe Backman, David Boren, Heather Saforovich, Betsy Acton, Lisa Leonard, 
And editing and production for this episode was carried out by our wonderful students at the McKay School, with our theme and music composed by Alistair Schwerman. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you heard, help us grow the podcast by subscribing or writing a review wherever you receive your podcasts, or give the Society a like or comment on Facebook or Instagram. The Latter-day Saint Educator Society also holds an annual conference every June to provide inspiration and information for those of you out there. We hope you'll join us this June. You can find more information on our webpage. Just Google Seek Learning Podcast. Until next time, this has been Seek Learning. <laughs>